This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I want to tell you my secret now. I see death. Silent Train is people! What's in the box? You did it! You blew it up! Damn you all Hello and welcome to another Slate spoiler special. I am Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today I am joined by Karen Hahn, staff writer at Slate. Hello, Karen. Hi, Dana. So nice to spoil another movie with you. Yeah, I think this is going to be a fun one to talk about. I just Mm -hmm. read your review and uh, and I have (laughs) lots to say about it. So the movie we're talking about this week is Cruella, the origin story for the 101 Dalmatians character directed by Craig Gillespie, the new, um, you know, Disney cartoon turned live action movie. I don't know what we're calling this genre that now exists (laughs) that there are several examples of every year. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's a it's a reboot of the old Cruella IP. Um, So I just saw this movie today and just read your review for it, and I have tons of thoughts about it. But since you're the person who reviewed it, I may um, ask you to set up the story a little of bit. I, the, the, the main thing that I think we should talk about up top, and this in a way precedes whether you've seen the movie or not. I mean, this <laughs> happened as soon as the idea was released and the poster and the trailer is the idea of whether you can do the thing that this movie is doing, take an old Disney character and tell their origin story when that character is a villain. Basically, can you do a Disney Joker? And that joke was everywhere on the internet when we first found out about this movie. Um, But I really do, and this is not, as it turns out, you know, it is not that dark and gritty, which Mm -hmm. we'll get into. But uh, I'm interested, before we get into this movie itself, what you think about that as a concept, what you think about the idea of taking somebody who honestly just wants to skin puppies. That's all we know about <laughs> Cruella know, Deville right? yeah. in her in her previous movie versions and in the book, by the way, wonderful book by Dodie Smith about Cruella Deville. Doesn't give her any backstory. I mean, it says yeah. that she's married to a furrier and she loves fur. That's mm-hmm. all we know about her. And she's mean and bad. We don't have to know why. <laughs> but in this new world of gritty origin stories, we do need to know why. And I just wonder what your <laughs> thoughts are on that cultural trend. I mean, I think I've seen a lot of tweets to the f- this effect where it's like, let bad guys be bad. And for the most part, I do agree with that where I feel like especially for something like um, the original 101 Dalmatians where it's a pretty simple story like I don't necessarily think you need a villain who has very complicated motivations like the fact that Cruella especially like in the animated movie is such a distinctive looking character with her half black half white hair the black and white um, tendency for color the fact that she's so obsessed with like skinning these puppies is good enough for me for that movie but like I guess the idea of trying to explore these characters further is interesting to me, but definitely not something that I think you can do at Disney. Like the whole, whenever you think of the Mouse House, it's usually pretty family friendly, pretty sanitized, pretty complacent isn't quite the right word, but I think you know what I mean, where it's like, it's supposed to please everyone. It's never going to be really divisive. And if you are going to stick to that kind of crowd pleasing mindset, I think that doing a villain origin story is something that's not really going to pan out as well as you probably want it to, which I think is the case for this, where like, it's a fun movie, but I don't, 
I don't think it works as a villain origin story because I feel like they keep taking pains at every turn to be like, oh, but you still feel bad for her. Or like, oh, but she's still kind of good at heart. Um, And there's never a moment where they're like, oh, yeah, she's like a bad person. Right. Even though she does some things, I mean, puppy skinning aside, and we can get into whether or not that happens in this movie or how much it seems like she's ready to start (laughs) doing it and, you know, and killing in general. But, you know, just some of the interpersonal things she does in this movie are really terrible and she never really has to atone for them. And so we can get into what some of those are. But um, but maybe first we should set up what this Cruella, who this Cruella is when we first meet her at the beginning of the movie. And I have to say... You referenced The Devil Wears Prada in your interview, which we'll get into when we get into The Bad Boss, played by Emma Thompson. It is a bad boss movie in many ways, <laughs> and a movie about fashion. But at the beginning, the movie, or rather TV show that it most reminded me of, this, as far as the, you know, the early setup where she's still a little girl, was The Queen's Gambit. You know, mm. I mean, there was sort of this setup of this exceptional little girl who had yeah. this, you know, who didn't fit in and who is orphaned at the beginning of the movie and who we sort of see positioned as someone who's going to be kind of unusually powerful. And you don't know whether her power will go to the good or the bad side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I find it interesting that you bring up the Queen's Gambit because I found the two um, properties compared on Twitter for a different reason as well, which I, I feel like we'll probably get into later, which is that it tends to be like the story of a white woman genius and all the people of color around her kind of being tools to that effect, like not really being fleshed out characters, which I tend to agree with, but definitely wasn't as mad about here, mostly because it's a cartoon movie. Like there's not too much to really pick at in that respect. Right. I mean, it doesn't take place in much of a sociological universe that we can really (laughs) recognize, although it does date itself. It places itself, Mm -hmm. I guess, once you allow for her growing up. Right. It starts out in the 60s. It's sort of in the early 70s, which fashion wise makes a lot of sense, because Mm -hmm. as you talk about in your review, there's a sort of Malcolm McLaren like fashion designer and purveyor character. There's kind of a punk scene. It's a little Mm -hmm. bit like late Carnaby Street. I mean, fashion wise, it's it's set at a wonderful moment. And I have to say that the best thing this movie does is the clothes. And since it's a movie about clothes, that really takes it a very long way. That really actually pleased me. I mean, the fact that it takes clothes so seriously and displays them so gorgeously is Mm -hmm. to, to, to me made for the most thrilling moments of the movie like the incredible garbage truck dress which I think is <laughs> worth seeing the movie just for that alone the huge train you know of garbage that kind of trails behind her in one scene but yeah. so let's let's go back to the beginning who mm-hmm. is Cruella when we first meet her her name is not Cruella yet for one thing yeah um so she, as, when we first meet her she's a little a little girl named Estella it turns out that she's just been born with half black half white hair so that they just get that out of the way straight out of the gate it's not that she dies it or that it's some trauma induced road like hair whitening it just is the way it is right we see her as an infant and that is actually from the book too there's a moment when uh, the owner of the Dalmatians Mrs. Darling says I went to school with her and she had one white plait and one black plait (laughs) so yeah so we get to see her like in school and we also see Anita uh, that you just mentioned like in the movie as well and they're sort of friends in school but Estella definitely has a slightly more like rebellious streak or outspoken streak and whenever she tends to indulge it her mother mother calls that Cruella like her her mother uses that as a a sort of nickname to refer to like her bad behavior basically saying like let's put Cruella away like let's not let her out and let's remain Estella the like good one of the two but she ends up getting kicked out of school anyway or they pull the classic like you can't fire me I quit move and leave and as they're about to go to London the two of them stop in at a party where it seems like her mother
father is going to ask a favor of someone there, probably or like asking for money or some kind of support for their new life. Estella, who is told to stay in the car, ends up leaving and going into the party anyway because it looks so glamorous, and then ends up witnessing her mother tumbling off of a cliff as she talks to their supposed benefactor, which is a huge moment of trauma for her because she thinks that it's her fault for having snuck into the party and having accidentally attracted the attention of some very rowdy Dalmatians. Yes, that is an important thing in this early mm-hmm. scene, which gave me a very bad feeling about the movie. That yeah. turned out not to be <laughs> turned out not to be too true. They didn't make too much out of it, but the idea of turning Dalmatians evil just seems like yeah. an extremely weak plot point to make you understand Cruella's motivations. There do happen to be three vicious Dalmatians that belong to the villain character here, the Emma Thompson character. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think I don't think an argument is being made that all Dalmatians are bad. No. Yeah, <laughs> Luckily, and there are no. two other dog characters who are you know typical Disney dog sidekicks who are adorable and helpful. I'm and obsessed with them. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get <laughs> Really to good dog acting. Yeah, whoever yeah. was doing the dog wrangling did an excellent, excellent job. So then we get Estella, the young Cruella, this orphan running away with her cute dog, uh, escaping from this party with the vicious Dalmatians where her mother has just <laughs> fallen to her death off a cliff. And the next place we meet her is in London, where she and her mother were headed in the first place to start their new life. And she shows up at this fountain, um, you know, completely bereft, and meets these two young boys. And here, if you are familiar with your 101 Dalmatians <laughs> property, you'll recognize their names, Jasper and Horace, who are the two henchmen of Cruella de Vil in the, uh, in, the, in the Disney cartoon, right? But they're mm-hmm. very, very different in this movie, I mean, in terms of their relationship to her, because at least when we first meet them, they're not just sort of her bumbling henchmen who carry out her every move. They are fellow orphans who kind of adopt her into their alternate family. Mm-hmm. They're very, very cute. I all have always had a soft spot for Jasper and Horace as someone who tends to love like the character actor roles in any given movie. <laughs> but especially in this movie, I think the way that like by necessity of having Cruella as the protagonist of this movie, they also have to make Jasper and Horace more sympathetic. And especially like... So after she meets Jasper and Horace, we pretty much immediately hit a time skip where it's like 10 or so years later where they're all working together as these small time con artists. But the grown up Jasper is played by Joel Fry and the grown up Horace is played by Paul Walter Hauser. And both of them are so great. Um, in their roles, Walter Hauser is like always a very dependable, colorful presence in any movie. Like if you've seen the other movie that Craig Gillespie is really known for, um, I, Tanya, you'll remember that he was played a very, very big role in that movie to a very big impact because of the mannerisms that he gave to his character. And Joel Fry here is definitely a little less eccentric um, as Jasper and almost poised as a romantic interest, but not quite. Yeah, this is sort of what I mean about the cruelty of her character um, being almost underestimated. You know, I mean, there's a lot of attention paid to whether or not she's going to kill puppies and how she's going to get revenge on the Emma Thompson character. But there's not that much attention paid to the absolutely horrific way that she treats Jasper and Horace. (laughs) She's so mean to them. And there are a couple of scenes, as you say, where Jasper, played by Joel Fry, who's positioned as being a little bit in love with her, basically sits her down and says, we're really disappointed in what a jerk (laughs) you've become, right? And, And it doesn't really seem like the movie takes that seriously that she has turned her basically her family the people that she calls herself her family her adopted you know alternate family into her servants and starts to treat them really horribly as the movie goes on so yeah I mean that's just one of the ways in which this movie I feel like it's not mean-spirited but it's kind of morally muddled it doesn't know how to accept the fact that Cruella is evil like especially because I think it doesn't know how to balance Estella and Cruella because the whole idea of Estella is that 
she's very meek and that's why she's not really getting anywhere in life. So as I mentioned, like they're now like small time con artists and Estella is using her obsession with fashion to basically make costumes for them to help pulling off their small grifts easier. But Jasper, knowing that she really is like really wants to get into fashion, manages to land her a job at a famous department store. And while she's there, she's like, I'm going to be good and I'm going to like put my head down and work, which is exactly what she does as unfortunately, basically just the maid or the janitor is mostly like cleaning the bathrooms and things like that. Um, and trying to talk to the manager to tell him her ideas for like their window displays. But what actually eventually launches her into the fashion world is she gets really drunk and she just wrecks one of the window displays and turns it into this very punk um, kind of art piece. And that ends up attracting the attention of the Baroness. Right. The Baroness, played by Emma Thompson, who is this very Miranda Priestly-like kind of fashion yeah. <laughs> designer figure who then takes Cruella, or it's still then called Estella, into her own house of, mm-hmm. of fashion. Yeah. And I have to say, I do love the Baroness as a character. It's sort of funny because I feel like part of the reason that she is so... Miranda Priestly esque is because they like the, the filmmakers are like we have to have someone who is meaner than Cruella eventually becomes so that you don't and <laughs> so it's not like why is she mad at this person to begin with um, but yeah I mean as soon as Estella ends up in the Baroness's fashion house it's immediately evident just how much of a tyrant she is like they have all the mannequins um, decked out in costume or in, in outfits that the designers have made like all in a row and she just walks down them being like this is stupid like you're fired I hate this and then when she comes across Estella's idea she like whips out a razor and just immediately cuts it and even cuts Estella and doesn't seem to blink twice at the fact that she's actually drawn blood from one of her employees. Right. In fact, she sends an assistant out to get a fabric sample in exactly the color yeah. of the blood, <laughs> which is a good little moment. Yeah. And I do have to say that in terms of the writing for the Baroness, the kind of jokes about how mean she is are, are usually pretty funny. Mm-hmm. She carries it off really well. I, I think if anyone understood the assignment in this movie, it's Emma Thompson. She's so good. There was never a moment where I was like, eh, this is a little cringy. Um, like sh- this for me is a very compelling argument for her to be in a Paddington movie. Like she's so committed to this very, very over the top bit. Mm-hmm. As it becomes evident to the Baroness that she, Estella is a very talented designer. She gets closer and closer to her and one day ends up noticing that the Baroness is wearing a very, very familiar necklace. So the necklace that she has is one that Estella remembers from her childhood as one that her mother had owned and had called a family heirloom. So the fact that it's in the Baroness's hands is something that's very, very confusing for her. Like she doesn't know why she has it and immediately assumes that something shady is going on, despite the fact that this is her dream opportunity. It's now a matter of like, do I pursue just working with the Baroness and becoming a part of this couture house? Or do I try to investigate what happened in my past? Right. I think at the beginning, it's not even implied that she knows that that necklace will will be the key to what happened in her past. It's just simply Mm -hmm. that it represents her mother and the last thing of her mother's that she had. In fact, it was lost in that scuffle at the very beginning Mm -hmm. where her mother falls over the cliff. Um, But that ends up escalating her her desire to steal the necklace back with Horace and Jasper Mm -hmm. in what I think is a really well edited and fun uh, sort of heist (laughs) sequence at a party um, ends up leading to a whole new layer of uh, of of reasons to um to pursue the baroness. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole idea of the heist at the party is that she 
will let Cruella out for a night as a distraction in order to let Jasper and Horace um, steal the jewel without too much trouble. Um, but as this chaos is unfolding, she sees the Baroness use a whistle to basically sick her dogs on somebody else and is like, oh, wait, I remember from that night, the Dalmatians were coming after me, but the Baroness was blowing that whistle and directing them towards my mother. And it's this memory that's now recontextualized where she's like, oh, the Baroness killed my mother. Like, it wasn't my fault that she fell off that cliff. Like, this was a murder. So now she has, as you mentioned, like, even more reason to go after this woman. Right. And she also has her very first dog napping incident setting up the <laughs> Cruella that we we know from the classic 101 Dalmatian story. Because one of the things that happens during the, the heist at the party is that one of the evil Dalmatians belonging to the Baron eats the precious necklace. So mm-hmm. then we get this kind of extended dog poop joke where she has yeah. to kidnap all three of the dogs or have, or have Horace and Jasper do it and just keep them until one or the other of them poops the necklace back out. Yeah. And this is sort of abutted by an extended sort of Cruella montage where like because she's now feeling very hurt and very angry towards the Baroness she lets Cruella out more often especially because she makes a a splash in the press for kind of how dramatic she is and so we see like all these different instances of her basically crashing the Baroness's parties and showing up in more fabulous outfits and trying to upstage her um, to get her to pay attention. Right. I mean, that sort of falls into your classic makeover montage, right? (laughs) Or like wowing people with your fashion montage cliche. But I will say that those parts of the movie are really propulsive and energetic. They're not the most Mm -hmm. original thing in the world. Yeah. um, But but they're part of the fun of watching this movie. I believe the song that accompanies that montage you're talking about, there might be a couple, but I believe it's the clashes, should I stay or should I go that accompanies that montage. And maybe it's a moment to talk about the needle drops in this movie, which are in a way really good because the songs are well chosen. (laughs) and energetic but it really gets so absurd as you say in your review it starts to feel like an extended music video yeah um i mean i first i feel like this is sort of a craig gillespie like um trademark at this point well i actually should mention i'm not sure if it's a hard g or soft g but anyway it's sort of a trademark of his at this point that like wraps into the very kind of kinetic visual style that he likes to do but just from the moment, I think it was at the moment when Estrella first steps into the Baroness's fashion house that I was like, I've heard like five songs in a row, like five famous pop songs in a row <laughs> right. to different actions. And like, this just feels like needle drop after needle drop after needle drop. And like, that does not cease for the entire movie, which is sort of a pity because the score is by Nicholas Bertel, who, as we all know, is a genius. I'll always love him because he composed the theme for the Slate Culture Gap Fest that I am on every week. Wait, so. I didn't know that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a friend of our, our co-host, Julia Turner. So back before he what? was the succession guy, he composed our, our little theme what? song. <laughs> wow. But yeah, there's not enough room for that score to breathe or for just silence to breathe or interactions yeah. between the characters. And even though those songs were really toe-tapping and I would like to you know have a playlist of this movie's songs... <laughs> They, they really were distracting from the yeah. narrative and it, it got to be too much. I will say there was one that really, really made me laugh. So the, it all kind of comes to a head when as the Baroness, I, I'm skipping a little bit of story, but you're not really missing anything. It all comes to a head as the Baroness figures out who Cruella is because she's become a huge thorn in the Baroness's side. So there's a big fashion show coming up and Estella manages to sabotage it by creating this dress that seems to have all these beautiful gold jewels attached to it. But when in reality, they're moth eggs, basically, like eggs of bugs that will eat 
fabric. And in order to secure all the clothes so that Corella can't steal them, the Baroness puts all these wonderful dresses in a vault. The vault ends up, like, they end up not being able to open the vault, but when they do, a bunch of moths fly out. All the dresses have been just completely ruined. And this is sort of, like, almost as a last straw, except Corella keeps going further because then... After the dresses are totally ruined, she stages this sort of punk fashion show right outside the Baroness's house to show off the clothes that she's designed and basically stick it in the Baroness's face. Unfortunately, the Baroness's henchmen managed to follow Jasper and Horace back to Cruella HQ, I guess, where they promptly tie up Cruella and leave her to die by burning down the house. And that moment they play that song Smile and I could not not laugh just because I was like, this is like, we, I've had enough <laughs> of these right. songs. And that in particular felt so much like it was trying to be like, but we could be like Joker, you know? Like, cause I think they <laughs> use that song in that movie as well. And it's a very, at this point, almost trite thing to do to play like this very sweet song over a moment of violence or deep emotional distress. Yeah, well, I mean, it's that there's so many movies that we could call out for for this particular sin, right? Yeah. But it's 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 taking that Scorsese thing that Scorsese did not maybe not first, but you know, famously well mm-hmm. in a movie like Goodfellas, and yeah, splashing up a sentimental song during a violent scene. I think it's the Judy Garland version of Smile in that scene, and I agree, <laughs> it, it took away from the emotional power. Yeah, of that it's scene just like come more on. Than adding to it. <laughs> Also, that scene is supposed to be this big suspenseful moment that we think Jasper, Horace, and Corella are going to die because yeah. the Baroness sets fire to the to the HQ. But we know there's not they aren't because there's at least an hour <laughs> left in the movie at that yeah. point. So you know, there's something about the pacing of that moment that that felt off anyway. Um, so the crucial part of the house burning down is the fact that we've previously we've been introduced to basically the Baroness's henchman, John, played by Mark Strong whom I love so much. I'm so happy to see him in anything. Oh, he's um, a very it's that guy kind of oh, face, yeah, absolutely. right? Absolutely. He's so so great. I wish he would get more leading roles, but I I'll take what I can get for now. So, up to this point we see him as a, the kind of a foil to the Baroness where she's very very outsized in behavior and very mean and he while he is basically her valet, he's still pretty calm and tends to have a level head about things. But the twist here is that John is the one who gets Cruella out of the fire. He saves her, and it ends up being because he was there the night of her mother's death and actually knows the story, the true story of Cruella, which is that Estella is actually the Baroness's daughter. Ba-ba. <laughs> um, and here's where we get to that kind of eugenic tendency in, in blockbusters. This drove me right? insane. <laughs> This idea from Star Wars and other places that everybody has to have some kind of blood lineage in order to really have any desire for vengeance or sense of um, ancestry. And the idea that your found family or your adopted mother is not your real mother. There was a part of me that cringed away at that moment when when she, Estella, goes back to the fountain where she goes to talk to her dead mom throughout the movie. It's Mm -hmm. sort of like the place that she goes to grieve her and says... You weren't my real mom. I could just imagine all kinds of adoptees and adoptive yeah. parents in the theater cringing away. I completely agree. And like when Estella's like, I'm I'm a genius, but I'm also mad. I must have gotten it from my mother. It's like, that's not how that works. <laughs> like, you don't get that from your mom. You didn't even <laughs> grow up with her. So you wouldn't have any exposure to that kind of behavior. So you wouldn't. Anyway, it's so silly. But the point being, the Baroness had a daughter, didn't want a daughter, told John to get to 
take care of it, basically. John Which is like, really dark, by the way, oh, the yeah. flashback where you see that happening for a Disney movie. I mean, yeah. more so than almost anything that, that Cruella comes up with in her plans. <laughs> because as you say, they're always softening her character. Yeah. The way that Emma Thompson plays being pregnant and not wanting to be pregnant and basically telling her henchmen to kill her baby mm-hmm. is really intense. I mean, it makes me think that if I had a little kid, I would probably not take them to this movie. I think your That's kid fair. needs to be nine or ten and have a little bit of a dark side. <laughs> yeah. Karen, I'm going to interrupt our conversation for just a minute for a word from this week's sponsor. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, but obviously, John is like, I'm not going to kill this baby. And so he gives her to one of the maids at the house who he describes as the sweetest woman ever, and which is why Estella grows up with just her mother. And presumably the reason that she came back was to be like, hey, like your daughter is still alive and we do need a little bit of money to keep living. But ba- the Baroness obviously does not take this well. Um, and as we saw at the beginning, has her thrown off a cliff by three Dalmatians. So now we've gotten basically twist upon twist upon twist and gotten Mm -hmm. the final motivation for revenge on the part of Estella, who's becoming more and more Cruella Mm -hmm. as as the movie goes on. (laughs) As her henchmen, you know, Jasper and Horace keep noting to her, like, you could go back to being your sort of nice schlumpy self, you know, designing clothes. But no, she is actually kind of glorying in her in her new evil self. And then she starts to cook up her big final plan for revenge on the Baroness. Mm hmm. So here's a moment when Anita Darling, who, if you know the original 101 Dalmatians, was, you know, the Dalmatian-owning lady, uh, <laughs> comes back into the picture because here she is a reporter, sort of a gossip columnist who reports on fashion and 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 on the Baroness for the tabloids. She's reporting the story, which we see on headlines all over the world, that Cruella de Vil has died in this warehouse fire. Um, and therefore, the Baroness decides to throw a party in her honor. But Cruella comes up with a plan, which actually I, I kind of love this plan, mm-hmm. that she and Jasper and Horace are going to ship clothes to every invitee of the party, essentially so that they all come dressed as Cruella and mm-hmm. sort of pretending that that's the Baroness's will. Like, in honor of Cruella, let's all come in costume as her, which, of course, makes it impossible to pick out that the real person is actually going to be there. Mm -hmm. I thought that was funny, though, because her hair ultimately is not in the same um, do as the rest of the guest attendees. Like, her hair's still kind of curly, whereas all the other, like, wigs that they've given out are pretty straight. And I was like, ultimately, how hard is that to pick out? (laughs) Anyway, that's just a minor quibble. (laughs) It does make for a great look, though. And we haven't shouted out the designer's name yet, Jenny Bevan, who, as you point out in your review, did the Mad Max Fury Road costumes Mm -hmm. as well. But yeah, the costumes in this movie are costumes that don't just look great, but that have to tell a lot of story, that have to really signify, like that moth dress that you mentioned earlier. And uh, and they're really brilliant. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be too far away when Oscar time comes (laughs) for anyone to think about about Jenny Bevan for a best costume design, but this movie is really begging for it. She deserves it. I mean, especially, I think, like, Cruella's dress dresses are obviously very fun and punk but I was I, I think I was more taken with the stuff that the Baroness wears because like in a few interviews like Jenny Bevan has like mentioned um, taking inspiration from vintage Dior and you can kind of tell like with the very statuesque um, shapes on, of the dresses like she just looks so glamorous it's hard not to be wowed by her whenever you see her 
Yeah, they're really sculptural dresses. Mm-hmm. I mean, that wasp dress made me think of Alexander McQueen, who mm-hmm. made dresses out of feathers and things like that. You know, the idea of taking these, or not wasps, but moth eggs and turning them into this beaded looking dress is just yeah. kind of evilly brilliant. Yeah, so gross. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, and I, I we'll also mention that like Anita is in the movie, and so is Roger. For all you one hundred one Dalmatian heads, um, he's introduced as the Baroness's uh, lawyer and is fired, obviously because Corella keeps upstaging her, and she doesn't understand why he can't like sue her for defamation. Basically, um, played by Kevin Novak, who is so great, so cute. But barely a character, really. In this yeah, movie. really kind of a throwaway character. And if you're trying to use your IP to the max and shout out all the characters everyone recognizes, they could have done a better job with Roger because I didn't even put together that that was Roger <laughs> Darling. And the fact that I now know it is makes me fear that they're setting up a sequel where we see he, him and Anita get married and start getting Dalmatian puppies and yeah. get back to square one again. Well, there's a huge, very sinister question hanging over those Dalmatian puppies, but we'll get to that at the end of the episode. <laughs> So now we're at this party where the Baroness and her henchmen are having trouble finding Cruella uh, because everyone is dressed like her. But Cruella ends up calling her to the same place where her mother was killed so many years ago, except this time she's dressed as Estella in order to confront the Baroness about her true heritage. And so they have this very, they they have a heart to heart with the Baroness saying like, I've always wanted to have someone as brilliant as me around. Like, I'm so thankful to have found you again. And they hug. And then the Baroness pushes her off the cliff. And all the party guests see it. And she's immediately arrested for murdering Estella. But the twist, which is very Barb and Starry. I don't know if you watched it, Dana. Oh, but watched it, loved it. The the culottes uh, this <laughs> reminded me a lot of that because basically that's true parachute <laughs> pants yeah because Estella's dress has a parachute built into it because she knew that the Baroness was going to betray her so as she goes over the cliff she pulls the parachute she's rescued by Jer- uh, Jasper and Horace and then she reappears at the party as Cruella because nobody else knows that the two of them are the same person even the Baroness now being taken away is like you don't understand like Cruella and Estella are the same person. So, so she's faked the death of her own double, basically, exactly. or faked her own death and become her double. Exactly. Which raises a lot of questions about social security and things like that. But anyway, I assume <laughs> she's got it figured out. <laughs> so she also, as a result of her legal machinations that she took care of before mm-hmm. designing this parachute dress to save her life, uh, willed her own money to Cruella, right? So Estella, the real person, willed her house and money, which, of course, are the Baroness's house and money, mm-hmm. to... Um, to her fictional self. So at the end, we also see her inheriting in the movie, it's called Hellman Hall, but we mm-hmm. see her taking off the man part of the sign. And so it is then called Hell Hall. Once again, <laughs> Dodie Smith shout out. That's the name of her abode in the original book. Yeah. And we see everyone there happily ever after Cruella, Jasper, Horace, and John now as well. And the three Dalmatians who now listen to Cruella as, as well as the other dogs. So we briefly mentioned that Jasper and Horace already have a dog that I do want to shout out as another MVP of the this movie so Horace has a little chihuahua named Wink and who is a little chihuahua who wears an eye patch which is really the cutest thing that you can do with a chihuahua I think <laughs> <laughs> and there is one point where as we mentioned previously Jasper and Horace as they're trying to steal um, the necklace way back in the party one of the distractions that they use um, is to dress Wink up as a rat which I I mean, I love that so much. He was so cute. 
which is, I mean, not necessarily a, a comment on the narrative. I just thought that dog was so cute in that red <laughs> costume. <laughs> well, again, I mean, that's the stuff that the movie gets right. And that's why I think for the right age kid, it would be a good movie, um, mm-hmm. even if the moral that it leaves you with is a little bit iffy, because yeah. it's, it's full of jaunty action, fun dogs, and uh, and beautiful clothes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Right. So we've gotten to the happily ever after, which is a kind of evil happily ever after. Right. I mean, the last we hear of Cruella, she's I think the very last line of the movie is something like, you know, one of the henchmen says, what do we do next? And she says, I have some ideas. Right. So you assume that she's already beginning to scheme for her next plan. It's so weird, though, because it's like, again, she's just the lady who likes fur. It's not like she was ever like this famous con artist or anything. But anyway, yeah, I digress. Yeah, the idea of what sort of world they're setting up, which I fear if this movie does well, we're going to find out in the sequel. I mean, I keep saying I fear a sequel, even though I enjoyed the movie. But I think (laughs) that this is just an example of one of those movies that didn't need to exist, is better than it needs to be or could have been, Mm -hmm. but really doesn't need to spawn any further (laughs) puppy movies in its wake. I agree. But I think the big question hanging over it that I want to return to is kind of the one we started off with, which Mm -hmm. is like, would this woman skin puppies? And and does the fact that we don't know whether she would skin puppies or not, and we're sort of, you know, always kept in suspension about that fact, make the movie somewhat unpalatable, right? I mean, there's a yeah. moment early on where she shows up in a, a runway show and she's wearing this gorgeous coat, also sort of a sculptural Dior kind of shaped coat that seems to be made of Emma Thompson's dogs. And you, mm-hmm. you see, you know, the Baroness say something like, she's killed my dogs and skinned them. But as it turns out, it's artificial fur. She never really did skin a dog. I mean, when it comes down to it, that is kind of the moral question of this movie. For all the awful things that you see her doing, we don't see her harming an innocent animal. And and yet, yeah. the whole reason that we want to go see the movie in the first place is we know Cruella DeVille harms puppies. So I just wonder <laughs> what you think about like that place that the viewer is stuck in. I mean, I would say that the reason that I wanted to see this is not because I was like, I want to see a woman skin puppies. But it's definitely <laughs> like that that's the one trait that Cruella DeVille has as a character, at least prior to this, right? Where it's like she will skin a dog to make a coat. Like that is the ethos of Cruella DeVille. And the fact that it backs off of it here does feel a little like it chickens out ultimately. Cause like the, the, the Dalmatians end up as her friends. And at the end of the movie, like she does, one of the Dalmatians has puppies and she's like, she gives them away one to Anita, one to Roger, which as I mentioned previously in the podcast brings up the question of, are the main Dalmatians inbred? Like their brother, the puppies are brother and sister. What is going on? Um, are Pongo and Perdita siblings? Exactly, oh my god, they are. What is happening? Um, but like, it's the same thing as where the ending is like, oh, like we're cool thieves now. We're gonna have a cool thief time instead of where. Even though, like as you mentioned, she treats Jasper and Horace really, really badly. She takes them for granted. She really bosses them around. And is not nice to them. And even after Jasper's like, hey, you need to like dial down this behavior. She doesn't really. It's just at one point she's like, hey, I'm sorry for my behavior, and then immediately goes back to doing exactly that. Right. And if you really want to spin this into the Dalmatian verse, as you call it in your review, (laughs) and make this be in in a continuity with what happens in the cartoon version of the movie... Then we have to flash forward a few years later where she's calling them idiots, yeah. right? And ordering them around like her servants. And and my heart just goes out to Joel Fry and Paul Waterhauser. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's just a villain origin story that's afraid of being a villain origin story. Like, it just wants to be about like a fun like girl boss, <laughs> basically, which is a problem in and of itself. But yeah, it just... 
I mean, it's the problem that exists with every remake or reboot or reworking of a pre-existing IP where so much of the time when I'm watching those movies, I feel like this would be better if it was just original material and if it wasn't tied to this other thing. Whereas, like, I feel like this would have been fun if it was just, like, uh, look at the story about this, like, burgeoning thief and fashion designer. Like, I don't need it to be about Dalmatians, ultimately. Like, this is also how I felt about the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies, which I was like, these are fun, but you, I don't think, like, you barely needed to have this tied to the Sherlock Holmes IP. Right. And that is essentially just to get enough name recognition exactly. to sell tickets, sell the property, get it, get international, um, you know, buyers for the property, etc. You're right. If this had been sort of a over the top workplace drama comedy about a bad boss, kind of a devil wears Prada, but set in a, in a mm-hmm. more cartoonish world. I think it would have been just as enjoyable and wouldn't have brought up these weird moral questions that I really don't want to ask when I'm just watching, you know, Emma Stone and Emma Thompson be fabulous together. Yeah. Although I will say I recently saw that Glenn Close was like, yeah, I'd love to do another Cruella movie. And I'm like, hell yeah, I want to see that because they can't walk that back at all. (laughs) She's already been in two movies as this terrible villain. And it's like, as long as you can keep going in the direction, it's great. Right. <laughs> Maybe that'll get her, her Oscar finally. Glenn needs her Oscar. Wouldn't that be amazing if Glenn Close finally won an Oscar and it was for like 100 Wall Dimensions 3 or whatever? <laughs> like- <laughs> so it seems like we're very much on the same page about this movie. Enjoyable watch while you're watching it, but you don't yeah. want to dig too closely no. into the questions that it brings up. But I'm just wondering, who who would you send to see this movie among your friends? I mean, basically Disney heads, people with kids, <laughs> people who love fashion, no one. Who would you recommend <laughs> to go see it? I think most of the above categories besides no one. Like, as you know, I do think, and I think Emma Stone has said in interviews as well that this is geared towards more of a teenage um, or adult audience rather than, like, very young kids. So it's good to keep that in mind. Um, Ultimately, I think, like, this is pretty fun if you... Like, especially as, like, theaters reopen and people get vaccinated and it's safer to go, this is definitely something that is probably more fun seen in a theater setting just because it's all about these very lavish visuals. Although that said, I know, like, a lot of other summer movies are coming out, so you're going to be spoiled for choice at the multiplex. But I wouldn't say don't see this. Like, it's pretty fun. I don't really have any huge problems with it. Yeah, that's what I think. What about you? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I'm probably going to, if not take her to the theater, at least show it on on Disney Plus to my 15-year-old daughter who will enjoy the clothes and probably, as a huge, huge fan of 101 Dalmatians and all of its iterations, find it one of the lesser ones, but still a, a really entertaining one. But yeah, you're right. If if I were going to see something on the big screen this summer, this might not be my first choice. But uh, <laughs> my main my main thing is I just I really don't want a sequel. Enough with the sequels already. Let it be a standalone movie and do what it does and move on. Yeah, make up ju- make just another movie where um, Kirby Hall Baptiste and Kevin Novak can play love interests, but as the main characters because they're so, <laughs> they're both so cute and charismatic. Like I want to see them in a movie, but not necessarily as Anita and Roger. And as you pointed out, also Joel Fry really needs yeah. to get a romantic lead. He's really, really endearing. And I feel like she really missed a chance at not not taking up with Jasper. Why would you not? Yeah. Like, especially after like being friends with them for like 10 years, like maybe the fact that they're very familial is part of what's putting her off. But I feel like especially as a teenager, like, how are you not going to have a crush on that guy? Whatever. <laughs> He's so fine. devoted. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been so much fun. It's always a pleasure to spoil a movie with you, especially something this wild. Yeah, it's totally fun. I hope to do another one with you very soon. And uh, thanks for coming on to talk. Yeah, absolutely. 
And that does it for this week's Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. Our producer is Morgan Flannery. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you have suggestions in the future for movies or TV shows we should spoil or other feedback to share, send it to spoilers at slate.com. We love to hear from you. For Karen Hahn, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for joining us and talk to you in two weeks. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.